pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your great love that sent your son into this world. That you didn't just leave us on our own to keep going our own way, just to experience all the consequences we deserve for our choice to turn away from you. But in spite of what we were and what we had done and what we deserved, you sent Christ. Lord, we were in deep darkness, like it says in Isaiah, and you sent Jesus to be the light of the world. We were in the gloom of anguish and despair, and yet you sent Jesus to give hope and peace and joy. We were in great danger of judgment and hell itself because of our sins, and you sent Jesus to be the Savior to rescue us. And so we are so thankful. Many of us here know him as our Lord and Savior and have something to rejoice in as we rehearse these truths this time of year again. And we pray for those who don't know you yet, who have not turned to Jesus yet. Lord, would you open their blind eyes to see him, to behold him as the Savior that he is, the only Savior that is possible, the only one you have given us, that they would turn uh, and put their trust in him. So, Lord, we come to these texts now this morning and ask for your help. Lord, give us understanding in our minds Give us responsiveness in our hearts to the truth that we will see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a song that says, If every day could be just like Christmas, what a wonderful world it would be. So there's a recognition that the world is not as wonderful as it could be and a vague idea that somehow Christmas would make it better. But what's wrong with the world and how does Christmas change that? Our text for today gives us some answers to those questions. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3 where we will see the first announcement that God will provide a remedy for what has gone wrong in the world. You might know that the Bible starts off with the sentence, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the rest of chapter 1 goes on to describe how God made the world and everything in it, and after each day, we are told, and God saw that it was good. And on the sixth day, God creates man and woman in his own image to enjoy a relationship with himself. And verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, 
It was very good. But now everything is obviously no longer very good. In any given week, there is enough in the news and enough in our own lives to remind us we are no longer in paradise. The world is full of sorrow and suffering and brokenness. And so what happened? How did we get from everything being very good to where we are now? How did we get here? Well, let's read the first verse of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So who or what is this serpent? In Revelation chapter 12, all the way at the end of the Bible, helps us get his identity. Revelation 12 Verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So the name devil means slanderer or accuser, one who speaks evil against someone. The name Satan means adversary or opponent. He is the enemy of our souls. Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God of this age. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So Satan rebelled against God. He was cast out of heaven. And now in chapter 3, he is involved in getting Adam and Eve to rebel against God on earth. The father of lies, as Jesus calls him, deceives Eve into doubting God's word and then actually denying God's word and then doubting his goodness. She takes the forbidden fruit. Adam joins her in unbelief and disobedience. And so Romans 5 tells us in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So every funeral is a reminder of the fall. Every time someone dies, it's a reminder that the wages of sin is death. We all enter this world separated from God and are at risk of being separated from Him forever unless an answer to the problem of sin can be found. The fall also introduced corruption and futility into the world. Go to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Verses 19 through 22.
for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, which isn't Satan, it's not Adam, God subjected it to futility in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So just this week, I was listening to Pandora, and they had the song, Is He Worthy?, that we sing from time to time as a church family. And remember the first verse asks, Do you feel the world is broken? And the answer we sing in the chorus is, we do. And this next verse says, is all creation groaning? And we respond, it is. So we are fallen people living in a fallen, futile world. We are separated from our creator and are already experiencing consequences of that broken relationship and are in danger of eternal consequences if something doesn't turn this thing around. So that's the bad news. But God announces that he will send someone who will reverse the effects of the fall and restore everything to the way it's supposed to be. And so look at verse 14 and 15 in Genesis 3. Back in Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So this is sometimes called the proto-evangelium, which I'm sure you are better for knowing that word. Um, it's Latin for first gospel. It is the first announcement God himself makes of the good news that he is going to send a redeemer. So here's three observations from verse 15. First, the promised redeemer will be a human being. Not an angel, but a person who would be the offspring of a woman. And here's a foreshadowing of the incarnation. The coming redeemer would be a real human baby born to a real human mother. Second, the promised redeemer will suffer. Satan will bruise his heel. In other words, he will inflict a painful wound on the one who is to come. And we need the rest of the Bible to tell us more about the nature and the significance of that suffering, but the very first reference to the coming Redeemer tells us he's going to suffer. 
And third, the promised redeemer will triumph over Satan. The seed of woman, though bruised on the heel, will ultimately crush the serpent's head. He will inflict a decisive, fatal blow that ultimately defeats the devil. Many of you remember Matt Gertz, who moved down to Oklahoma. And one time in Sunday school on this verse, he said, Jesus is coming, and he will put an end to everything you started. I think that's a good way to capture, because this is addressed to Satan. These, verse 15 is addressed to Satan. So God is saying, Jesus is coming. Nobody knows his name yet, except me, but that will unfold, and he's going to undo everything you've done, everything you've started. So God promises to send a redeemer to triumph over the power of sin and death and hell, who will set things right in this world. But centuries pass and nothing changes. The curse is still in effect. The whole creation is still groaning. The devil seems to still be the undisputed ruler of this world. But Galatians 4.14 says this. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. So there's the incarnation. There's what we're celebrating at Christmas. God sent his son, the one who's co-eternal and co-equal with the father. And at just the right time in history, the fullness of time, the perfect time, a woman gives birth to a son in Bethlehem. And this, of course, is the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3.15 that the Redeemer would be fully human. And it's similar to the way the Gospel of John describes Christmas as well. John chapter 1. Let's read the first three verses. In the beginning... Deliberately written just like Genesis 1-1 in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Jesus is fully God, worthy of all the honor of God. He's the Creator and then verse 13 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And notice the purpose of the Son becoming one of us in Galatians 4. It says... Fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So he came to redeem, which means set free by the payment of a price. We talked about that last Sunday and the Sunday before that. 
and the outcome of being set free from the power of sin and death and hell and the law is that we would be adopted into God's family. Ephesians 2 reminds us that we were sons of disobedience. We all were by nature children of wrath. But now, because God sent Jesus as a redeemer, we can become children of God. So John 1, going back to John, I know we're doing a lot of verses here. John 1, 10 through 11 and 12. He was in the world, referring to Jesus, the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He came to his own, referring to the Jewish people. Those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. So we don't start out children of God. We become children of God by believing in his name and receiving him, welcoming him, embracing him as the Savior that he is. And that gives us the right to become God's children. C.S. Lewis put it like this, the Son of God became a man that we might become sons of God. Let's look at another text that echoes and fulfills God's promise in Genesis 3. Turn to 1 John 3. 1 John chapter 3. And let's read 7 and 8. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness, doing what's right in God's sight, is righteous. Just as he is righteous, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So... Two things I want to point out there. One is, here's another reference to the seed or the offspring of the serpent. Remember, there's two lines going through human history. <laughs> the seed of woman, the seed of the serpent. And so, look at John 8. Let's start at verse 42. Jesus is in a big discussion <laughs> with Jews who are supposedly believing in him by the end of the chapter, they're picking up stones to stone him. But kind of in the middle of the chapter, 42, Jesus says, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So Jesus is saying that to people who claim not only that Abraham was their father in verse 39, but that God was their father in verse 41. He says, no, that's not true. 
your real father is the devil. You actually belong to his family. But notice what John says about the purpose of the Son of God appearing. The reason the eternal Son of God became a man and came to earth was to destroy the works of the devil. One way to describe the design of Christmas would be to call it a search and rescue mission. Jesus himself said the Son of God has come to seek and save that which was lost. Luke 19, 10. But verse 8 tells us that Jesus also came to earth on a search and destroy mission. He came to defeat Satan and destroy his works. So let's trace three stages of Christ's triumph over Satan. First, preliminary victories over the devil in the earthly ministry of Jesus. So turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We'll start at verse 23. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Isn't that interesting? They're asking about being destroyed in light of 1 John 3, 8. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So notice the demons know exactly who Jesus is. They know he is the Holy One of God. They are very orthodox in their belief. They also, the crowd notices Jesus' absolute authority over the demons. He commands them to leave and they must obey. Let's look at another example, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. And who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them 
to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. So again, the demons know Jesus is the Son of the Most High. And again, he has absolute authority over them. They even have to ask his permission about where he will send them. One more for now. Luke 11. Luke 11. So starting in verse 14, he was casting out a demon and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed. And then there's a discussion where, oh, he's doing that by the power of the devil and go back and forth. But I want to land on 21 and 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. So who's who in this story? Satan is the strong man who kept people under his oppressive power. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 and 26. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. So repentance is a gift. God gives, perhaps, leading to the knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So here's this image of being a slave to Satan, captive to do his will, can't set yourself free, you're in his snare, and here comes Jesus, the stronger one, who overpowers the devil and sets the captives free. One of the summaries of Jesus' earthly ministry, you don't have to turn to this, is Acts 10. Peter says in verse 38, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So one way to summarize what Jesus did, he's doing good, he's healing the sick, he's making the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk, lepers cleansed, and setting free those who were oppressed by the devil. So that's his earthly ministry, some preliminary victories over the devil. Next, let's look at the decisive victory over the devil in Jesus' death and resurrection. On the first Good Friday, Satan bruised Jesus' heel. It looked like the devil had won the battle. But Christ's death and resurrection crushed the serpent's head. Let's look at two texts about that. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, 
15. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So the cross is doing two things, according to verse 14 and 15. It's canceling out all our sins, so they're forgiven and forgotten and never held against us again, no condemnation. And it's disarming the powers of darkness so that Satan and his demons no longer can ultimately harm us. Another text would be Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. So there's the incarnation, there's Christmas, Jesus becoming like us. Why? That, through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Death is called the king of terrors in the book of Job. It is called the last enemy in First. Corinthians 15, people live in fear of death all their lives. They either live in denial that it's going to happen, or they live in very conscious dread that it's going to happen. But they're in slavery to fear. But now, because God sent a Redeemer, because God sent Jesus... Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will sing, Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Why not? Jesus Christ was born to save. So that's fear. That's just a cloud over everybody's life, one way or the other, living in fear. And that's gone now because Jesus conquered sin and death and hell and Satan, and so we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. And last, the final victory over the devil in the return of Christ. 
deliberately borrowing the language of Genesis 3.15, Paul reminds us of what will happen when Christ returns to this earth. Romans 16.20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Crush. Boom. Done. So that's the fulfillment of God's promise that the Redeemer will ultimately destroy the devil. So let's look ahead at Revelation 20. See how this is a story that begins in Genesis and goes all the way through the whole Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation. This is a, a theme in the whole Bible. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss. Remember, that's what the demons were afraid. Jesus, are you going to send us to the abyss? And a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old. There it is again. Who is the devil and Satan. And bound him for a thousand years. So here's a temporary Limiting of Satan for a thousand years. I believe that's the millennium. But still not the final version of getting rid of Satan. Drop down to verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The end. So Martin Luther, of course, wrote, A mighty fortress is our God. It talks about, Lo, his doom is sure. That's it. That's his doom. The lake of fire, day and night, tormented forever and ever and ever. What about God's people? Go over to the next chapter, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, a tent or dwelling place, of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And then chapter 22, first four verses then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life. Hmm. 
bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and that of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. So notice the complete reversal of the fall. No more curse, no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no longer barred from the tree of life. Remember Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were cast out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of life. It was off limits. They had no access to it. And now there's free access to the tree of life and free access to the river of life. And so, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll sing, he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. The whole world under the curse, the whole world groaning. Now the curse is reversed. The groaning is gone. All the crying is gone. All the tears are gone. They're wiped away by God himself. And now we have blessing forever. So as we close, I want to look at Acts 26, 18. This is Jesus having appeared to Saul, now Paul, on the road to Damascus. And he gives him a commission. The last part of verse 17 says, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So if God is showing you, you still belong to the kingdom of darkness, turn from darkness to light, turn from being under Satan's dominion, which means his rule, his authority, his power, submit to God's dominion, be under his kingly authority, and receive the forgiveness of sins that comes through faith in Jesus. According to these verses, forgiveness of sins and an eternal inheritance in heaven belong to those who are sanctified, which means set apart by faith in him. And the him is Jesus. Acts 16.31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, which means you will be rescued from the power of sin and death and the devil and his demons and restored to a right relationship with God forever and ever, all because of Jesus. He's our Redeemer. And for those who are trusting in Jesus as their Redeemer, here's a couple more texts. Go to Luke 1. Luke chapter 1. So this is Zacharias. And you remember, he's the father of John the Baptist, and he's going to have some things to say about his son, John the Baptist, but he's also going to have some things to say about the one 
that John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for. So starting in verse 67, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 74, to grant that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. So we had great and powerful enemies. Sin was an enemy. Death is an enemy, the last enemy. All the power of hell were enemies. But God has visited us. The Son of God came down to earth and accomplished redemption and salvation, including rescuing us from all our enemies so that we might serve God without fear. And Zechariah's response and our response to those realities would be, blessed be the Lord God. Praise God. He redeemed us. Amen. And then last, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. This is part of a prayer of Paul for believers starts in 9, but I want to just start at 12. And my translation has the adverb joyously attached to verse 12. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we were under the dominion of darkness, so I hope you've seen that theme this morning. We sang a couple songs about Jesus, the light of the world. We're dwelling in darkness. The people who have dwelled in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah 9, quoted in Matthew 4. We're in darkness. We're under the power and authority of Satan. We can't set ourselves free. But God intervenes and rescues us from our awful captivity under the dominion of Satan, and places us into a completely different kingdom, namely the kingdom of Jesus, his beloved son, who redeemed us. And the appropriate response, says Paul, is heartfelt, joyful thanks to the Father for sending Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you called us out of our darkness into your marvelous light. 
we were helpless, we were hopeless. <laughs> There's not a thing we could do about our fallen condition. And in your great mercy and love and grace, <laughs> you had a plan from eternity past before the foundation of the world to rescue fallen people like us. Through Jesus. And in the fullness of time, he came and he redeemed us and brought us to yourself. And so we are just so thankful that you have opened our eyes to see the truth of who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross, rising again. Pray for anyone who's never embraced those truths, that they would trust Jesus with all their heart today. Lord, we thank you for sending us a Savior and a Redeemer. It's in his name we pray. Amen.